Head over to Hulu this March, where our new shows and movies will keep you streaming all month long. Catch the acclaimed movie All of Us Strangers, starring Paul Mescal and Andrew Scott. Stream the new Hulu original limited series, We Were the Lucky Ones, with Joey King and Logan Lerman. And don't forget about Grey's Anatomy. Every Grey's episode ever is now streaming on Hulu. So, what are you waiting for? Go stream something new on Hulu. He koonai purangi tēnei nā te reo irirangi o Aotearoa. So she checked out of her hotel and she was sitting um, in the sunshine on the banks of the Waikato River. She went to use the public toilet and um, in that toilet she was very brutally uh, attacked by a man with a knife and um, she lost her life. Welcome to Crimes NZ with me, Jesse Mulligan. In this episode, we're looking at the 1992 murder of English tourist Marjorie Hopegood. Playwright and actor Nicola Pauling has close family ties to Marjorie. What do you say to Marjorie Hopegood's brother when he says that we just can't let this kind of thing carry on happening? Yes, well, we, uh, you know, this is um, sort of thing that you know, sickens our fellows when they um, they have to go and look at the, you know scenes of this nature and have to investigate this type of thing. But uh, you just wonder what society's coming to these days. You're obviously hopeful. Do you do you believe realistically that there is that that crucial evidence, that crucial information, out there waiting to be brought forward by a member of the public? There's something sitting there at the moment somewhere, and um, uh, I'm I'm hopeful that someone in this town and Hamilton knows the name of this offender. Someone would have seen him. He's gone home somewhere. And um, we're just waiting for that person to, you know, to come to their senses and, and just and give us a yell. It's hmm. a very New Zealand statement, isn't it, from the police? Give us a yell. That was Detective Chief Inspector Rex Miller, the officer in charge of the Marjorie Hopegood murder inquiry. He was speaking to RNZ's Kim Hill on January 12th, 1992. Two days prior to that interview, Marjorie Hopegood was murdered in a Hamilton toilet block. Why was Marjorie in Hamilton at the time of her murder? Oh, this is one of the many questions that sat in our family and zero offence to Hamilton, but I suppose it was one of those things as, as a tourist you jump to Auckland and from Auckland you might go up the far north or you might jump to Rotorua or down to the south, but Hamilton sort of wasn't on as a tourist hotspot. And so we wondered... Particularly, I should say, in 1992. In 92, yeah. Plenty to recommend the city now, I should say, as a, a former plenty. Hamiltonian. And having spent quite a bit of time there myself, hmm. I'm really fond of the city. But yeah, at the time we wondered that ourselves. It was one of our many questions as a family. What was she doing in Hamilton? Um, and what we discovered uh, along the way is that earlier, um, in about 1989, her brother um, had come to New Zealand with his girlfriend. Um, so he was the first of the Hopegood families, uh, her, first of the children to come to New Zealand. The parents had, had already been here, obviously. And, um, and he travelled with uh, his girlfriend at the time, who was a Mormon. And um, Hamilton was at the time home to the only Mormon um, church yes, in New Temple Zealand View. near Temple View. Yeah, and so when they came here, she said to him, "I I want to go there." And so she went to top up on on her faith. And during that time, uh, Marjorie's brother um, fell in love with 
the city. He fell in love with the river and he fell in love with the homes, um, the grand villas and the tiny cottages. And so when she said to him two or three years later, when she was sort of finally ready to make a trip to New Zealand, um, first of all, she said to her brother, why don't you come with me? Um, and he, uh, he said, I can't, I've just got a new job. He said, but I can tell you where to go. And he said to her, you've got to go to Hamilton. And so she did. I guess to take a step back, why was she visiting New Zealand? Uh, so um, she was um, visiting New Zealand. She was coming to meet with my grandparents and members of my family. We think that she was coming to to explore the country that she had been born in. Um, she knew her adoption story. She knew that this was her her homeland. It was her first trip back. But I think from the conversations that I had with her, her brothers, um, that she was curious for really the first time in her, in her life to really understand what her birth story was. And she felt that my grandmother, or my grandparents particularly, held that story. And so she was definitely here to see them. Um, there is evidence, Jessie, that she was also potentially um, going to reach out to her birth parents. Um, she had uh, made contact with her birth mother who was in Australia at the time and she certainly had a ticket that would have allowed her to go from New Zealand to Australia um, and she had a phone number on her at the time as well that the family of the birth father think was his and that she yeah, potentially mm. had we don't know but um, certainly um, getting the story from my grandmother was top of her list. What was your grandmother's connection? Where do they fit in? Uh, so my grandparents were Salvation Army officers and back in the 1950s, as was the want of many church organisations, they um, ran maternity hospitals and um, the Salvation Army had a maternity hospital in Auckland called Bethany that my grandparents were heavily involved in. So that's one aspect. Uh, the other aspect is that they had about a year earlier before Marjorie was born, taken a trip to London on a boat um, for an international um, Salvation Army officers conference. And on that boat, they met an English couple that they became very fond of. Um, the boat was uh, separated men, men in one quarters and women in the other. So my mother uh, became very f friendly with the with the woman and my, my grandfather, the, uh, the man. And then um, once they docked in London, as is the way of, of my grandparents, they said with all earnesty, if there is ever anything, we can do for you. Don't hesitate to ask. And it was approximately six months later when a letter arrived to my grandparents with a request for a child. Uh, the English couple were desperate to have a family. They couldn't have their own children. And their age in the UK, they were both 40, um, prevented them from adopting in the UK. And so they reached out to my grandparents and they said, is there any way that you could help us to find a baby. And again, this was the time, Jessie, where that was absolutely possible. In fact, it was probably, you know, tell us what sex, what colour you want her eyes, what colour you want her hair, and we'll go and find it for you. Um, and so um, my grandparents did exactly that. There was a, a baby that was up for adoption at, at Bethany um, from an unwed mother, and um, my grandparents scooped her up, 
brought her home, contacted the Hope Goods and said, we've found you uh, a, a beautiful baby who needs a home. Uh, they got on the boat and travelled all the way back to New Zealand and during that time Marjorie stayed with my grandparents as this brand new baby. My father at the time was um, around 18. There were many rumours that the baby was his, um, that there was an unexpected child in the house. Mm. Uh, and they arrived, um, my grandmother carefully showed Ursula the joys of mothering and off they went. And the relationship between the Hope Goods and my my family, my grandparents and my parents, were, were stayed really solid over the next 32 years. Boy. Hmm. Okay. So now we're back in 1992. And what do we know about what Marjorie Hope Goods did on that day, January 10th, 1992? Uh, we know that she had, uh, she was wrapping up her time in Hamilton. I think she'd had three nights. This was her fourth day in the country. When she had arrived in New Zealand four days earlier, my grandparents were uh, away on holiday, so this was summer holiday time. So she was she was waiting um, until they got back and and spending time in the city that her brother had guided her to. Um, my grandparents were due back that evening um, or that afternoon from their holiday, so she was aiming to sort of get on the road from Hamilton at about sort of four or five o'clock, drive to Auckland. So she'd checked out of her hotel and she was sitting um, in the sunshine on the banks of the Waikato River, writing postcards, and as her brother said to me, um, probably really reflecting. She was at a stage in her life where she was very reflective about her life, what she'd done, where she was going. Um, yeah, that's what she was doing. It was a beautiful summer's day um, for those people in Hamilton that know know that spot. It's a just it's a it's a magic space to be. That river is is yeah. so beautiful. Um, yeah. 10th of January 1992, the city would have been empty. I mean, everyone just leaves Hamilton mm-hmm. in the summer, maybe not quite so much anymore, but it would have been stinking hot, yeah. probably. Uh, and, yeah, perhaps not too many people around. What happened next? So uh, what we know is that she was um, ready to go and she went to use the public toilet, which was right on the banks of the river. Uh, before she got in her car to drive and um, in that toilet she was very brutally uh, attacked by a man with a knife and um, she lost her life in that toilet. Um, She was um, found about half an hour later by a jogger who who was running past and stopped to use the toilet. Um, That's, yeah. I mean, that sort of thing doesn't... Doesn't happen, right? Doesn't happen yeah, in New Zealand, and, and or... particularly back then. And that's what everybody yeah. said: this this doesn't happen here in New Zealand, and it doesn't happen in Hamilton. Um, and I think that that was it was just so um, so random um, and so brutal that it was it, yeah, it did send shockwaves through. I mean, massively through Hamilton. And you were there, Jesse. You must, you know. I mean, you would have felt that viscerally. I, yeah. I imagine, and the country did. But because, of course, she was an international tourist, so did the UK. So it was, yeah, it was just. It was thing. It stopped people. It just. Um, and you know, twenty five years later, when we took the play to Hamilton, there were still people who were just so um, impacted by what by that event, you know, still. And it just, yeah, it had... It was just so shocking, I think, for people. They couldn't really understand. You know, she didn't know anybody. She wasn't there with anybody. You know, how could this possibly 
How could this possibly happen? Your parents got a pretty um, chilling phone call. They did, yeah. I mean, the, the first chilling phone call came to my grandparents, I believe, and it was a phone call from the police on the Friday night, um, so two or three hours after her murder. They'd found the details in her, in her car, in Marjorie's car, and the phone call just said, um, are you expecting a Marjorie Hope Good at your house tonight? And my grandfather said yes, and the police officer said, OK, thank you and said nothing else, and it was my grandfather who said, hey, wait, um, should we still be expecting her? And the police officer said, probably best not to. And that was, that was all they had. And then they woke up the next morning on Saturday morning to the news um, and put the pieces together. Um, yeah, and then, then they were officially contacted by the police, as were my parents. And because the Hope Goods were, because her immediate family were so far removed, um, it was my family, I suppose, who stepped into that role that a, that immediate family would, would take and uh, went to Hamilton and, uh, yeah, did, did what they could, and, including just being with, with Marjorie and, um, and working out what she should be dressed in and clothed in and... Yeah. How did police police go about searching for her killer? It was a huge operation, I think would be really simply to say. It was uh, in January, there were a lot of officers that were on leave and they all got called back. And I was just going back through my notes with the interview that I did with Rex. And, you know, he talks about them just going, where do we start? Like, this is just... This is so, so big because we have nothing to go on and we just don't know where to start. Not only do we not know where to start, but the the eyes of the entire country and potentially other parts of the world are on us. And so they pulled in every police officer that they could. What they had was a a vague identikit picture of uh, a potential offender. Um, It wasn't a, a hugely reliable witness, but they had something. And then one week after the murder... Thanks to some fairly intensive forensic investigations on the site, what they had was a fingerprint and they had a drop of blood that wasn't Marjorie's. That was due to some pretty painstaking work. Really painstaking work because by all accounts the, the crime scene in the toilet was a pretty disturbing and horrific space to to be in there was a lot of blood and they tested every single drop of it and they did that because DNA testing that new science had just landed mm. in New Zealand and they they knew that if they could get something that this was going to be their way in because they just had nothing else to go on you know there was just it could have been any it could, it could have been anybody and so they got um, some DNA, but basically they, the, the feet on the ground were uh, as many officers as possible just pulling over any male who fitted the loose description and he talked about we sucked so much blood. And I suppose they were swabbing as well, I'm not quite sure, but mm. certainly just to anybody and everybody because they had to throw the net so wide. Yeah, because that was all they had, that <laughs> DNA evidence and trying to match it up. How did they find their man? We were five weeks out from the murder or, or roundabout. I thought it or, took a long time, yeah, yeah. Yeah. And, you know, you've got a, you've got a city sort of just on, on the edge of its seat, really, holding its breath, because as long as this 
has not been sold. Uh, yeah, so two police officers are walking down the street. They see a, a gentleman who fits the description. They, they stop him, they take a name and an address. That's pretty amazing, eh? Just seeing... Mm. Uh, presumably the description wasn't super specific. They just super saw a guy. Super specific, yep. And they were just, you know, like they were just pulling, I think, really anyone who f- was yeah. in a certain age demographic. And so this was one of, you know, 700 or so odd men that they had done this with. Uh, they got the name and address. The next day somebody um, went round to meet with him. They did some back ground checks. There was something in the background check that set off an alarm bell for them. There was a former partner of this man who, when spoken to, um, yeah, gave gave some evidence that the, that set some alarm bells off for the police. So they went to um, to DNA test him. He he refused the first time round. So they sent in another uh, officer the next day um, to try and and get his agreement to a DNA test, which they finally did. They got the fingerprint evidence and the blood evidence back on the same day, and it was was pretty clear that they had the right guy. So they went and they brought him in, and as soon as he came in, he, yeah, he, he told them everything. There was some story around how they got that DNA evidence yes. off him after his initial refusal. Yeah, and and I love that you use the word story. <laughs> uh, <laughs> yeah, there is. So there was some talk that this this man was a little bit of a ladies' man, and so the officers in charge looked around. <laughs> they spotted a young police officer um, who had a certain attractiveness about her, encouraged her potentially to wear the uniform in a way that might be. Um, possibly not quite up to standard, and to try again. And so she went back on that second day, I'm sure, with a, with a partner, and just tried a slightly more flattering approach, and it worked for, yeah, yeah whatever reason, whether that's what it was that worked or it was just the second time round and they were lucky. But, yeah, that's the that's the story that, that goes that goes with that and yeah and so he he took them down to the police uh, to the to the um, toilet block and he talked them through what had happened showed where he had ran and we had washed himself and we had um, thrown the knife and it was pretty cut and dry from then Jesse. Is there a reason you haven't used his name? Uh, we don't use it uh, much in, in the play I suppose it's not a voice that feels like we want to have a lot of give a lot of air time to I suppose he did 10 years got out in 2002 what sorry Mm. no it's right. yeah okay yeah so 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 is he out now yeah he did 10 years for it yes he did 10 years for it Mm. tell me about the play uh so the play, um, uh, I suppose the play really, um, for me, captures what her birth story was and the experience of her birth family, which I think got lost. That wasn't really a voice that was heard much in, in all of the kerfuffle. And for me, the story of her birth mother in particular, I'm a mother myself, and that felt really important, just to to hear her story around the birth of Marjorie and Marjorie's adoption and what that experience was like for her, but also around then 32 years later finding out what had happened to her daughter and what impact that it had on her and how she processed that. It was the the loss of a daughter twice, and I I really wanted to give voice to that. How did it go, the the play? Where did you put it on, and, and, you know, how did the season go? 
Yeah, we did two seasons in Hamilton. Uh, I'm based here in Wellington with my creative team, but as we were working through the devising work with this play, it suddenly sort of dawned on us that we needed to take it to Hamilton first. It felt like that's where it needed to be seen. So we did a season in Hamilton, and then we were invited back and did a second season, and it it was an extraordinary experience. It, It was, yeah, extraordinary and such a privilege to bring the show to Hamilton and have people that were so directly um, influenced and connected to the case in the audience, including former police officers and in, including members of Marjorie's birth family who I had discovered and they they made a pilgrimage down to Hamilton to be, um, yeah, sitting in the front row when the lights went up um, on, on the play. It was pretty extraordinary. You yeah. did that at the Meteor Theatre. Did how it in fa- the Meteor Theatre, yeah. How far away was that from the site of the murder? Oh, you 400 could, metres? Yeah, yeah like, absolutely. You could throw a stone to it. So mm. it felt very, um, yeah, felt like the right thing to do to have brought it there first. Uh, and, yeah, we did a Q&A session at the end of every performance and just had these incredible conversations with people about, yeah, about all, all aspects of it. And it was pretty unforgettable. Pleased you did it? Really pleased, yeah. It was it was just such a beautiful process to work through, and I think twenty five years uh, made the difference. You know, it could uh, it could have been a story that that I could have tackled ten, fifteen years ago, and I don't think I would have had the cooperation that I had, particularly from um, Marjorie's, uh, oh, birth, you know, birth and adopted family. There was enough water under the bridge that people felt that they could open, and they could talk really honestly about what the experience had been like for for them so yeah really really grateful to have those answers yeah for for my family and um and yeah for hers as well thanks for listening to this episode of crimes nz with me jesse mulligan there are plenty more episodes on the rnz podcasts page and you can find them on apple spotify iheart or wherever you get your favorite podcasts if you're looking for something a little different check out generation covid it's a podcast made by young people moving into adulthood in a world that's drastically changed or tune into rnz's afternoons program with me each weekday from 1 to 4 p.m on rnz national Botox Cosmetic, out of botulinum toxin A, FDA approved for over 20 years. So, talk to your specialist to see if Botox Cosmetic is right for you. For full prescribing information, including boxed warning, visit BotoxCosmetic.com or call 877-351-0300. Remember to ask for Botox Cosmetic by name. To see for yourself and learn more, visit BotoxCosmetic.com. That's BotoxCosmetic.com.